Hey, it's Gabby, and guess what? The Corporate Quitter Club is now officially live. It's live Monday, October 4th. Get in while you can. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm beyond freaking excited about this because when I started, I was completely overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. I felt like I was spending money left and right for honestly crap. So I decided to take the headache and guesswork out of it for you. And I'm giving you the perfect launch pad to start that damn business once and for all. See the vision, see the possibility of leaving the nine to five and connect with some pretty awesome like-minded people in the process. So get in while you can, cause this shit is gonna fill up fast, like, literally. So run, don't walk. If you're interested in joining or learning more, you can visit corporatequitterclub.com or email us at thecorporatequitter at gmail.com. See you there. You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast, where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. and welcome to Corporate Twitter. I'm your host, Gabby Ionello, And today's guest is Terry McDougal. She's an executive and career coach and the CEO of Terry B. McDougal Coaching. She helps high-achieving professionals remove obstacles that keep them stuck so they can enjoy more success and satisfaction in their lives and careers. Before becoming a coach, Terry was a longtime corporate marketing executive where she led teams, developed strategies, and invited senior leaders to drive business results. She is also the host of Marketing Mambo and is the author of Winning the Game of Work, Career, Happiness, and Success on Your Own Terms. And Terry, I am so, so grateful that you're on this podcast and you reached out because I know so many people, both in the corporate space and people who are looking to exit, to really find out, A, how to remove obstacles, like how to get out of being stuck, like how to define what success is, how to find satisfaction in their day-to-day. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on. Well, Gabby, thanks for having me. I'm excited for our conversation today. Yeah. So can you give us a backstory? Like I know you, obviously with your bio, you know, you were a marketing executive and now you're kind of running the show yourself. How did you stumble into becoming an executive and career coach? Well, I actually had hired coaches a couple of times in my career where I kind of got stuck or I felt like I was ready for the next level, but I wasn't sure what was holding me back from being able to get there. It worked. It it helped me quite a lot to learn new skills and to start to mentally elevate myself to that next level. So I was ready for the leadership position that I kind of envisioned myself in. But what precipitated me leaving the corporate world was that the last employer I had, I worked there for 12 years. I had four different jobs in the time that I was there. The last position that I had was not one that I raised my hand for. It was one that my boss came to me and said, I want you in this position. I tried to say no. (laughs) I, I was not excited about the position. She was pretty insistent that she wanted me in it. So I, I said, okay, I was a leader in the organization. I'm good corporate citizen. And it never really was a good fit. I was not very happy. I didn't feel really fulfilled in the role. So I started thinking about what's next for me. I interviewed outside the firm. And I also started noticing that even though I was interviewing for the next level roles at these other organizations, that I wasn't feeling super excited about it. You know, I was happy that I was getting the opportunities to interview, but I was uh, a little bit surprised that I wasn't feeling excited. And so that got me thinking, okay, what do you want to do next? You know, what are you good at and what do you like to do? And I think that I've always been a little bit of an entrepreneur. Even when I worked in these big companies, I was what you call 
intrapreneurial, meaning that like I often was doing new things and I love that. I love it whenever, you know, there's a merger or we're doing rebranding and it's sort of like an unformed problem. So go out and figure out what are the parameters of the problem, come up with a solution. And I was lucky enough throughout most of my career where I was able to kind of align that spirit that I had with the challenges that were in these organizations. It didn't scare me to think about leaving the confines of big corporate. I believed in myself and I had tested those muscles many times, albeit with sort of a safety net because I was inside an organization, but I was always doing kind of new things. And I think that I looked at myself and I said, okay, what do you like to do and what are you good at? And as a marketing leader, I'd always done a lot of coaching and mentoring of my staff and I loved doing that. And I just thought it was smart to do that. And I saw people appreciating it and growing. And so I knew I had kind of a knack for coaching. So I actually decided to leave the organization without having another job. At first, I did some marketing consulting, but I found a coaching program to go through to be trained as a coach. Even though, you know, I'd say I was naturally inclined to be good at coaching and, you know, you don't have to have any credentials to be a coach. I felt that it was important because I didn't want to kind of stumble into something and present myself as a professional without really having the training. And I'm very glad that I did because there were a lot of things that I didn't know that I didn't know about coaching. There were a lot of great tools that I learned that I use every single day that were huge blind spots for me. So anyway, that's how it happened. It basically just got to a point where I wasn't happy. I did not see any opportunities beyond what I was doing at that organization. And so I was sort of forced to say, okay, what's next? Radical left turn. It's good though that you also, in the way of you finding coaching, that you were able to find things in your personal life to utilize that. And then you use those same tools with other people. And I find that with most people as they transition through corporate or you know even different roles in different industries, there's always transferable skills in every single chapter and hurdle you face in your life. It's just a matter of you know how you frame that experience and what's happening. So I know you touched on like tools and stuff. Can you kind of get into like what tools you use with people and like what are some of the, you know, what people use to kind of move forward in their careers and finding those successes? Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, when I think back over what I did as a marketing director and how I consulted within the firm, because, you know, my job was to interface with the various business leaders that I supported, understand the problems that they were facing and what their goals were, and then to go back and develop a marketing strategy to help drive the business or solve whatever issues that they were facing. And now that I've been coaching full-time for four years, what I realize is that I use the same process in coaching that I did in my corporate role. And this is how I describe the coaching framework. The first thing I do with people is help them get clarity on their goals. And I can talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but a lot of times that's the issue. People are feeling pain, but they're not exactly sure what they need to do to have a different experience in their life or their career, right? All they know is that I don't like what's happening right now. And it's important to get clear on where you want to go to. A mistake that a lot of people make is that they're so uncomfortable in their situation that they just look around and they grab the first thing that they see, you know, like, oh, I got a job offer. I'm just going to take it. And then they end up in a worse situation than they were before because they're running away from something. They're not running towards something. So get clarity on that goal. 
Secondly, I work with them to start building a roadmap that's going to get them from where they are to where they want to go. Usually when we're building the roadmap, we'll uncover some skill gaps, you know, or some information or knowledge gaps that they need to fill in. And we'll either work directly on that or we'll identify what they need to do to fill that gap. I give them a safe place to let their hair down, to talk about what's going on. And then the last thing, and probably it's neck and neck with getting clear on your goals, this this fifth thing, it is shifting your mindset to believe that the thing that you want is possible. Because so often when I'm starting to work with somebody on the front end and, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, I don't know if I've outgrown the role or, or I'm so uncomfortable, like my new boss is terrible, <laughs> whatever. There's always, there's a whole laundry list of different issues that people face that might want to drive them out of what they're currently doing. But we often will say, I'd really like another job, but beginning to shift their mindset to one, a possibility, one of believing that the thing that they want is possible. And that requires us a lot of times to get past our own defense mechanisms, you know, these deep-seated, often unconscious mechanisms that we use to protect ourselves from disappointment or taking risks. But, you know, we don't get the things that we want unless we're willing to step outside our comfort zone. And that can be a little bit scary. So that's something that I work with people on is like, okay, let's get yourself in a mindset where you're willing to take action, even if it's a little bit scary. That's kind of the framework. With all that being said, though, do you find that there's maybe differences between people who are like, they're not in the right place and they need to think differently? Or is it that they like, because they're right, there's red flags. There's always red flags for things. There's like, you know, stress, burnout, health and relationship problems. Like people get to a point where they're like, enough is enough. Like I need out or I'm going to die type of feeling. And then there's the other point where like, it's actually none of those things. It's just masked like that. What's the difference between maybe a red flag and something that just needs to like maybe shift a bit if there's a difference between the two? Well, I mean, a lot of times on the front end, it's hard to tell. You know, when I'm talking to somebody in the beginning and they're telling me about what's going on at work, you know, I have different questions about like, okay, I wonder if this individual showed up differently at work, if they did some things a little bit differently, if they might have a different experience at work and they might actually start liking their job more versus being able to identify with maybe you're in a really toxic situation. I mean, maybe you've got an extremely narcissistic boss who is going to be abusive. We've got our own like way of looking at the situation and we have made judgments about that situation. And you know, we can't see that maybe if we peel the blinders back, that there's a lot more options for what we can do. And maybe if we do something different, we'll get a different result and we'll actually enjoy our jobs more. So with that being said, you know, you're talking about like making the move and changing some things up. If, you know, that happens to be the case, how does someone even pivot from one career to another? Because it's one thing to write in your case, you had advanced up at the same company, right? You're continually showing the same people, but if you're doing a completely different job at a completely different industry, like how do you even highlight your transferable skills so that you are still seen as an expert or someone who's skilled in that field, even though you don't have maybe like the five years to back it up? Yeah, I think that, again, starting with what do you like to do and what are you good at? And then step back from that and say, like, where else in the marketplace might these skills and strengths be valued? 
I say to people like, find somebody who's doing something that you think you want to do. You might not even know. And a lot of times people are held back from even exploring it because they'll be like, well, I don't want to talk to them unless I know if that's what I want to do or not. And that's like the chicken or the egg, right? Like, well, how are you going to know unless you talk to them? I say to people, like, it's all in how you approach people. But networking is like absolutely the best way to go about fact finding. And, you know, in some ways sort of trying on opportunities for size, you know, to see like, is this something that I'd want to do? But find somebody that's doing something that you want to do or working for the company you think you want to work for or whatever. And here's how you start the conversation. You say, I'm starting to think about the next chapter in my career. What you do or your company looks really interesting. And I would love to grab 15 or 20 minutes with you and just ask you some questions. Would that be okay? And then ask them all different kinds of things. How did you get started? What do you like best about what you do? Have you ever seen anybody with a background like mine be successful? Sometimes when you hear people's stories, you'll discover like, oh, well, they actually used to do something similar to what I did. And you can hear about like, well, what was the path like to make that transition into what you're doing now? Like I said, get advice from them. Ask them what their day-to-day is like, because a lot of times jobs can look really cool from the outside, right? But then when you find out what it's really like, it might not be as attractive or it could be the opposite. I avoided working in financial services for 10 years of my career because I was an economics major. It would have been a good fit for me, but it seemed very boring to me. from the outside because I didn't have any line of sight into what kind of jobs there were or anything. You know, I just knew about banking for the general public. I didn't know about commercial banking or B2B. I just knew about B2C stuff and it seemed boring to me. Once you start talking to somebody who's in that company or that industry or that type of position, they can kind of give you the inside scoop and they can also, you know, give you some pointers on whether they think that your background would fit or what that company looks for in candidates and that kind of thing. And if you just keep doing that kind of exploration, you're going to gather information and you may say, oh, well, maybe it makes sense for me to go back and get an MBA, or maybe I should go online and get some kind of certification in a particular like project management or digital marketing or something like that, just to bolster your credentials so that you might be a better fit and be looked at as somebody who could do the job. Yeah. Plus it also, right. It's kind of a shortcut. Like you're getting the insight upfront versus like throwing yourself in something that you think you might like. Once you get there and you're like, holy crap, this is, I don't like this at all. And I've made a terrible decision. That is worse than you staying where you are, quite frankly. It is worse. It's worse. And then a lot of times, like you've burned the bridge once you've left your old employer. And it's funny because as much as you say that, and it's absolutely true that it's much less risky to talk to somebody who is doing that job or has done it and gather information from them. Some people are so afraid of networking that they would rather just like, I'm only going to apply for jobs online and I'll just take the risk and go work at this company without really doing a lot of investigation you know, and you're much better off spending more time investigating, learning, even if you know somebody that works there and they work in a different department, you can talk to them, like, what's the culture like, you know, read the news and see if there's some kind of corporate intrigue going on. Is the company in trouble with the government? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you never know, you know, you never know. 
all of those things will have an impact on what it's like to work there. And I've worked at two places, like one for nine, like about nine and a half years, another place for 12 years. And I went through years where, you know, the bonuses were outsized because we had a great year. I've gone through times where, you know, maybe we had a giant commercial loan go bad and it had a negative impact on the stock price. And, you know, you go through these different seasons and, you know, even though the culture hasn't changed, sometimes things that happen outside of the organization can really have an impact on what it's like to work there. They're cutting all the budgets and you can't do any business travel or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, aside from the money aspect, can you kind of get into how to navigate office politics? Because I know for me, like there were jobs that I worked in that I loved, but I could not stand the politics that were going on, the BS behind the scene, the throwing under the bus that I had to leave, not because it wasn't good, not because it wasn't paid well, but because the environment was so freaking toxic and I had no idea how to, what do I do with this? Yeah. Most people don't teach you about how to navigate politics. And I know a lot of people will say to me when I'm working with them, like, oh, I hate corporate politics. I don't have anything to do with corporate politics. And the thing to realize is that if you step out, you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with corporate politics. You are giving up your chance to influence within the organization. Don't walk away from it wholesale, but learn how to do politics in a respectable and respectful way. And it's honestly, it's just about having relationships and in some ways, keeping your finger on the pulse of what's going on. I always said this, that it's important. Like some people are like, I'm just going to come in, keep my head down, do my job. And that's it. But what can happen? And I was actually talking with one of my clients yesterday that there was somebody in the company that was sort of talking about an issue that she had to other people and they were giving the wrong information. They were simplifying this very complex issue to the point that it made it look like my client didn't know what she was doing. And she was starting to sort of get little inklings of what was being said. And I always say, play a good game of offense, but also play a good game of defense. And what I mean by that is like, come in, do your job and do it well. That's your good game of offense. Your good game of defense is to look over your shoulder, be aware of who are your allies, who are the people that you know have it out for you, understand if somebody is saying something that's not true or they're misconstruing something or they're trying to push you under the bus to have your game of defense. So like, for example, document stuff, put things in writing. If somebody has gone to your boss and they have misconstrued something that you've done, go to your boss and say, let me explain what the situation is. If somebody is bad-mouthing you or there seems to be some conflict, go to them and say, what's going on, right? Like, But do it in a way that's like positive you know, address it so that they know that they can't kind of stab you in the back and you're just going to like pretend like it didn't happen. Because I've seen it happen very often that probably have heard that a rumor can make its way all the way around the world before the truth even gets the shoes on. And so if you're hearing that something's being said or done that you don't like, get involved, push yourself in there and bring the truth with you. It can feel a little uncomfortable, but it also lets other people know that they're not going to be able to talk smack about you, right? That you're going to take up for yourself and, you know, that you're a player. 
What happens when it's like, for example, for me, I came in at a specific role at like a more of a junior level. And there was someone above me who was like the boss's best friend, like the person who like kissed ass. And you're in a place of like, I can't go to the boss because the boss likes the other person more. So regardless of what I said, I would feel maybe that it's pointless. So like for people who deal with stuff like that, right? The hierarchy of politics and all of that, probably say the same thing, but do you have any other ways of navigating? Is that like building a better relationship with the boss before addressing things or talking to HR? Like what would someone do? Well, I mean, I think that I'm I'm not going to say this is a blanket statement, but a lot of times HR is not helpful. You know, HR typically is the tool of management. HR is there to keep the company safe, to make sure that they're not violating any laws, that they're not there necessarily. And I'm not saying this like in a bad way or whatever, and it's not, I'm sure for every company, but they're there for the company. They're not there necessarily for the individual employee. You know, if there's something really egregious, and honestly, if it's going to put the company at risk, they'll probably be interested, right? If somebody is being sexually harassed and the company's afraid they're going to get sued, HR will probably pay attention, right? But if you've got a boss who, you know, is not a good manager and they're borderline rude or whatever, but it hasn't moved over into abuse, they'll just say, go work it out with your boss, right? They're not going to like take up for you. And in fact, they don't, a lot of times don't have a lot of clout. You know, they're there to serve the management of the company. And so if a manager says, I don't want you to get involved, they'll be like, okay. I mean, if it's not going to put the company at risk of being sued or something like that, or it's not like a safety violation where OSHA is going to come in and shut the plant down or something like that, they'll just say, work it out. But when it comes to, this might be a little bit tough for like entry level, but as you move up in the organization, the broader the network that you have and the more people that know the value of what you bring, the stronger your position is in the organization. Because somebody can't just like kind of put you under their thumb or somebody can't just like paint a particular view of you and say, oh, you know, she's she's disengaged or she doesn't, you know, she doesn't do a good job. Because if other people know the value of your work, they can say, well, that's not my experience with her, right? She's, and I do think that it's important also to realize that your career is your responsibility. A lot of people will say like, oh, my boss hasn't, my boss hasn't promoted me. I've done all this stuff and my boss hasn't promoted me. Well, you know, maybe your boss is never going to promote you. Sometimes bosses don't want to promote people because it makes more work for them. Like if somebody's really good, they don't want to promote them because they're like, if I promote her and then I'm going to have to hire somebody else and maybe they're not going to be as good. Not every boss is like that, thankfully, right? There are a lot of bosses that are kind of realize that part of their job is to develop talent and move people up. But there's some people that are kind of selfish, right? And they're going to just be like, that makes more trouble for me. But going back to what I was saying earlier, if you build a stronger network within an organization and you, you know, if you're in an organization and you like working there, ask people to coffee, get to know other people. Oh, I've done that. And it helps so, you know, just be like, hey, I find what you're doing interesting. Can I know more? I'm new to the business. I'd really love to know your, and most of them are like, wow, like they're flattered. They're like, and half the time they even pay for the coffee. I don't even have to pay for it, but that's not the point. But it's just, think about even from your perspective, like if someone asked me, hey, can I pick your brain and take you to coffee? You'd be like, wow, me? 
I feel so special. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Most people really like to talk about their experiences. They're happy to share. It feels very flattering when somebody else is interested. And in companies, especially when a junior person has enough confidence to reach out and say, you know, I'd, I'd like to learn more about the operation of this division, or I'd like to learn more about you, or Actually, that often will distinguish that person and it will be talked about in senior level meetings. I mean, I've had, I remember one time when I was a marketing director, I was one of like seven direct reports to the CMO and we had about 125 people in the whole department and somebody on my team, she had done some kind of contest. I can't even remember what it was, but like they were basically vying for some funding for a special project that they wanted to do. And each person had to do a presentation to try to get the funding. And somebody on my team had an idea. And so she did this. And I I don't even think she got chosen for the funding, but my boss was so impressed. She was just like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing that Pooja like threw her hat in the ring for this. And, you know, she did such a great job on the presentation. And just from her trying and her like coming up with an idea and getting on a stage and showing her stuff in front of the entire department and in front of all the senior leaders, it just distinguished her. All of a sudden, she went from my boss probably not even knowing who she was to being like, oh, that Pooja, she's like a go-getter. And one other thing too is that a lot of times volunteering for things can give you exposure. You can meet people in different departments. People get to know your name. And that's depending on the size of the company in particular. If it's a larger company, sometimes you would never meet some people. But if you're on some kind of, like we always had a United Way campaign and they were always looking for volunteers and you could meet, you know, because usually they'd have somebody who is like an executive vice president level would be the executive sponsor. You know, people could volunteer and then they'd be in meetings with this person. And it's, it was just a really great way to get to know more senior level people in the organization. Yeah. Agreed. I feel like that really helped with my career as well, getting more involved. Because right, how often, if you're in marketing, how often are you going to deal with the legal team other than maybe a contract with the vendor? What about finance? You're not going to, it's just not going to happen. Especially if you're such a large company that you have multiple divisions with multiple, like it's so massive. My office alone had 900 people. Like that's a lot of people. So it just, it, it, it bridged the gap. Yep, definitely. So what can you touch on regarding like, I know you use the phrase happy tank. How does someone refill their happy tank when they're feeling like really unhappy, stressed, or burned out? Because I know, especially right now with the pandemic, people are working remote and they're also like rejecting the systematic ways of working in nine to five and being in an office. How can someone like refill that tank so they're in like feeling successful and also like feeling good from a day to day perspective? Well, I think it's really important. When you feel like your energy is being drained, when you have an emotional reaction, if you feel you're like avoiding something or you're getting defensive, in that moment, stop and say to yourself, what is the thought that's causing me to cringe, to avoid, to get mad, to feel defensive, to grip my teeth? Think about what that thought is and try to raise it up to the level of consciousness. It's in your subconscious right? And you're just, something's happening that is hitting that belief and it's triggering an emotional response. And whenever you're in the avoidance or defensive, you know, this is fight or flight, that takes a lot of energy. If you are already feeling burnt out, it's going to drain everything out till you're just 
bone dry. You have nothing in the tank. That's one thing to do. And once you raise that thought up, question, is this really true? You know, what are some other ways that I can look at this situation? And it could be like, I'll just give you an example. Like say somebody, and this might not be exactly relevant to, you know, COVID, but it's a pretty simple one. Say somebody comes in every day and they walk by your desk and you say hello to them and they never say hello, you know, and you get angry and you start not liking that person. Maybe your belief is that they don't like you. And so you're saying, well, I don't like them because they don't like me. And then you get defensive when you're with them. You know, you're like, I don't want to sit next to them. I hate it when they present, right? Like there's just a lot of energy that's going into that. But if you stop and say, well, what might be some other reasons why they're not saying hello to me in the morning? It could be that they're hard of hearing. It could be that they've got their earbuds in. It could be that they're on a conference call. It could be they're deep in thought preparing for a meeting that they have. Maybe they're not a morning person, right? Like there could be like a million reasons besides the idea that they don't like you. So if you just say, whatever, I'm going to stop saying good morning to them, but I'm not going to have any hard feelings about it because I don't know why they're not saying good morning. And it could be they need to have their ears cleaned. Who knows? But if you just even think about that, I mean, as I'm talking about it, I just think, oh, if I just let go of that judgment or that belief that, oh, they don't like me just as I'm talking about it, I already feel lighter. I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to avoid them. So we have, you know, we've heard it so often, perception is reality. Our perceptions are based on our beliefs. And again, think about a time where you've been with somebody that's close to you and you guys have observed pretty much the same event right? You're both there and you see something happen. And one of you is like, oh my God, that was horrible. And the other person's like, what's the big deal? We've seen the same thing, but we have different beliefs about things. And so we respond differently, but we have choices about how we respond based on what our belief is. And we have to examine those beliefs to say, is this serving me? Even if somebody doesn't like you, does it serve you to avoid them or to be defensive around them? Or do you just be like, whatever, I don't care. You could change that to belief to be like, I'm not sure they like me, but I don't care. You know, you're going to show up differently if that's what you believe. So that's part of helping your tank not to drain as quickly. But the other part of that is how do you fill your tank up? And you have to take care of yourself. You know, you've got to be aware of, do I need more sleep? Do I need to take a break and eat? Am I going out and like having fun? Am I doing things that I enjoy? Am I caring for myself? I think it's really easy a lot of times whenever we're stressed with work to just focus so much on work because it's about survival or we're not sure what's expected of us. So we just like pour more time and energy into work than maybe we should or we need to. And sometimes we might work more than is needed. When I was in corporate, I didn't bring my laptop home very much. A lot of people would bring it home every night and on the weekends. I very, very rarely ever did that. Part of the reason was because, well, I didn't want to do work at home. I only wanted to do my work at work. And it didn't hurt me. I mean, I I advanced in my career. And I think it's because when I was home, I was spending time with my family and doing things that I wanted to do. And when I was at work, I showed up ready to to roll because I was refreshed. Yeah. It's funny too, because I just... We get Chinese food at home a lot and we always get extra fortune cookies. And I had one the other day because of wanted something sweet. And the fortune I got was like, oh, you have duties to these things around you, but what about the duty to yourself, right? The duty to your body to like 
whatever it is, spending time with friends, reading the book. Like you said, you were going to do this thing for yourself, but you're putting other people for It was like a nice makeup call for me, but it's essentially the same thing of, of what you're saying. Like there's more to life than, than that. And that's a red flag. Yeah. Just as you were talking, there's one more thing that I think it's really important to check. And that is the way that you talk to yourself, because a lot of times people will, they will talk to themselves inside their head in a way that they would never, ever say out loud to another person right? Like, you know, they're calling themselves names and saying they're stupid. They're an idiot. They're, you know, like, oh, you should have done that, you know, whatever, right? Don't talk to yourself like that. Talk to yourself like you would talk to a good friend or a loved one because you deserve that, right? And I know why people do it because they're trying to protect themselves. They don't want to make mistakes and get in trouble or, or anything like that. But it drains energy. It keeps us from being confident, has us feeling doubtful and being worried and hypervigilant. And I always think that it doesn't really matter at all what other people think of us if we think highly of ourselves and if we're kind to ourselves, right? Like you can pretty much withstand anything if you say to yourself, like, I'm here with myself and I like myself and I think I'm good enough and that's okay. Because sometimes we're going to be around people that are toxic. You know, if we're so worried about what they think, they will use that against us. They'll use that to manipulate us. And if you stand by yourself and you, you're like, you know, you got this girl <laughs> or boy, um, you got this. You're good enough. You tried your best and, you know, you made a mistake. It's okay. What can you do to fix it? Right? You just talk to yourself nicely you're going to find that you recover more quickly and you have more energy. Yeah. Now, does that fall in line with your term of like practical positivity? Like I know you had said that that can kind of help with translating into both business and like life management, but like, what is that? And how is it in comparison to what we just talked about, about like fulfilling your personal duties as a human being, not a you know machine working day to day? Yeah. I mean, it's about honoring yourself as a human being and recognizing that you don't need anybody else's validation to be good enough, period. You are already good enough. You are already worthy. And it doesn't matter if you're on a performance improvement plan. It doesn't matter if you got fired. It doesn't matter, period, what your situation is. You are already good enough. You are already worthy. And it's important for us, like I said, to be there with yourself, to create your own reality through the way that you think. If you look out into the world and you are open to the possibilities, even if something happens that you didn't expect, if you say to yourself, what can I do to turn this around rather than like catastrophizing and being like, oh my God, yeah, this is the worst thing. Listen, if you've gotten to where you are right now, you've been successful. Like you haven't died, you haven't gotten run over by a train, you know, you haven't gotten struck by lightning. <laughs> you know, like you've you've probably encountered like my son ran it, hit a deer. He was on a road trip and he hit a deer recently and he only bought his car like five weeks ago. Damn. You know, that's horrible. <laughs> that sucks. That's a, that's a drag, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a drag. But whatever, you know, it happened and you just take care of it, right? Don't let a lot of negative thoughts go into like woulda, coulda, shoulda, why this happened to me or whatever. You're just like, whatever, it happens. Pay the deductible, go get it fixed and keep on moving, right? So I, speaking of like 
I mean, that's the downside, right? Pick it up and keep moving and like go with the flow. But like, you know, I know you published your book. I can see it behind you on the shelf. Like that obviously like came with flow, but like, what was the process like? Did you have to hunt down publishers? Like how did the idea start? Did you kind of stumble into it? What are the steps that got you to become a published author? Well, it was kind of gradual. I mean, much like my decision to leave corporate, it was a bit gradual. But I, um, when I was leaving, I think maybe when I was thinking about leaving, I started sort of processing some of my thoughts and feelings about things that had been going on at work. And I was, I was really looking back over my career and thinking about lessons and stuff. And so I started blogging and I blogged pretty regularly for two years. And after I left my job and I'd started my coaching practice, uh, somebody said to me, like, how many words do you have? Like in all of your blogs, how many words? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> he said, I will bet you, you have enough for a book. And so that really got me thinking. And I actually downloaded, I had like 25,000 words in all of the blogs I'd done. And, you know, I think serendipity has a way of landing on your shoulder sometimes. Then shortly after that guy had made that comment about, I had enough words for a book, a friend of mine said she was in a book writing program. And so, you know, I kind of put two and two together and I was like, oh, tell me more. (laughs) And I took part in this book writing program that a professor at Georgetown University does. And it's brilliant, actually, because he spends about 12 weeks on Zoom teaching all the participants a lot of the tips and tricks of how you write. I mean, lots of great thoughts, even for people that don't like to write, you know, he was giving us tools that you could use to actually dictate your book and stuff like that, just to transcribe from, from dictation. So after the first 12 weeks, and then they actually assign you to a uh, developmental editor as you're writing the developmental editor, I would meet with her once a week and she would give me feedback on what I'd written. She helped me sort of figure out the structure for the book this program is affiliated with a what they call a hybrid publisher. It's called New Degree Press. They work with self-published authors. I think it's probably almost better than working with a, you know, you don't have to like do the pitch and wait to find out if they approve you or not. Like you can publish through the self-published author and they do everything. They had artists that develop my cover. They had typesetters that typeset everything inside. They had editors and proofreaders, everything that a normal publisher has. They just do it a little bit differently, but they guided all of the participants through everything and, you know, getting the books loaded up on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And I think there's like Kobo is another one for like independent bookstores. Cause I mean, the beauty now is that everything's print on demand. You just upload all the files to these different publishing platforms. And then people can order the book through Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever. But I'm very glad that I found that program because I'm one of those sort of like overly confident and foolish people that sometimes think I can figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) And then it takes 10 times longer too. Yes, exactly. And I probably, you know, and I worked in marketing, so I, I knew how to write and edit and I knew how to get stuff printed, but there were a lot of things that I did not know about book publishing that they walked us through. But it was a really nice program. And also the fact that there were other people that were going through it with me. You know, So I had a, like a cohort of people that were publishing the same time I was. And it was really nice to have that kind of support. That's awesome. Yeah. And also, like it's probably really cool to be in a really involved course like that versus like these do-it-yourself, kind of like pace your own 
thing where you spend like 200 bucks to get the like all the stuff and you're kind of like, I don't want to say not motivated to do it, but like obviously if there are people in the same boat as you who you're working with routinely and they have whole fledged staff who like do all these things, whether you know it or not, are pushing you through this and you're fulfilling it versus if you were to do it on your own, that's, you know, you say you're going to do it today, but it ends up being 10 years later. (laughs) So yeah, they set deadlines for you. And there were, there were certain like gates that like when you got to it, if you went through it, you basically, I mean, I think I had to sign a contract saying that I agreed that I was going to finish my manuscript. And I don't know if that was just to make people know that it was super serious. I, I'm very goal-oriented anyway. I, I was definitely going to do it. My friend that told me about it, she actually decided not to keep going. You know, it's funny because when you when you write a book, first of all, writer's block is real. <laughs> and there was a lot of fear that went into it because, you know, these were my thoughts and I, I thought that they were good and people had liked the blogs, but... I was worried I was going to put all this time and effort into it. And then people were going to be like, your book sucks. <laughs> and and also, I think that what happened with my friend was that she felt like, oh, I don't have enough time to make it perfect. And I had to come to the realization that there's a reason why they have second and third and fourth editions of books, because you do come up with other ideas or, you know, like even after my book came out, and I read it. I was like, oh, I should have made the intro shorter. And if I do a second edition, I will make it shorter. One of the things that Eric Kester is the professor at Georgetown that runs this and his, I think it's called the Creators Institute is the name of his program. But I don't know whether this should be reassuring or not, but he said, you know, the majority of people don't read the books that they buy. (laughs) And he was like, probably only about 25% of people that buy books read the whole thing. And, you know, there's a certain percentage of books where the cover is never cracked, right? People buy it and they put it on the bookshelf. But, you know, like sometimes it's okay just to open it up and read a chapter. Like in my intro, I just said, like, read this book any way you want to, you know, like look at the table of contents. And if you want to skip to chapter 10, do it, right? It's not a novel. It's a book full of advice and you can skip to the chapter that works for what, what's going on with you. That's great though, because you give people the flexibility to choose based on what they need in their life. Because sometimes I don't need X thing now, but I will two years from now when I look at this again. You know, you giving them the option. I think it's almost like, I don't remember if you, you remember the book series Goosebumps back then, like for kids, you there were this certain uh, copies that you can like choose your own story and you jump back and yes. forth in the book. I mean, that's uh-huh. a stupid yep. example, but it's kind of the same thing of like, you get to choose. But it is the same thing. Yeah. That's such a good, that's such a smart thing. Great mark. I mean, you're a marketer, so, you know. Yeah, good. well, I wish I could take credit for it. They, you know, Eric, Eric Kester actually recommended that. He, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up though. Amidst like all the other amazing gold nuggets and knowledge that you had presented so far. So thank you for that. But one question I like to leave off with all my guests before wrapping things up is if you could give advice to your younger self, what would that be? So what would you tell young Terry? Yeah, I would tell myself not to worry so much and to show up a little bit more, not to worry about what other people thought either. Let my light shine. You know, I spent a lot of time earlier in my career, like, for example, if I was in a meeting or something and, you know, there was a question or they were brainstorming on something, sometimes I would not share my thoughts because I was afraid that people would think that they were stupid or that 
other people already thought of the thing I thought of and they already rejected it because it wasn't good enough. And it happened more than once. And I actually wrote about this in my book that 45 minutes into the meeting, somebody would bring up an idea that I had in the first five minutes but I didn't share. And people would be like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, why don't I just say the things that I'm thinking, right? And it's okay. Even if people don't think it's a good idea, maybe it's going to spur somebody else to think something. So I just wish that I'd been a little bit more open and been willing to just show up as I was and not worry about whether I was good enough or not, because I was. Well, thank you for sharing that and for you know bringing all of these good things to the, the episode. I think a lot of people, both in corporate and who are transitioning out or starting their own business, are going to find all these things very helpful. Yeah. Well, thank you for allowing me to share this, giving me the forum. I really appreciate it, Gabby. Of course. And for the listeners, if you want to learn more about Terry, go to corporatequitter.com. All of her information, her bio, links to her website, basically the book, if you want to purchase it, all the good things are going to be on there. So be sure to check that out. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for listening to the Corporate Quitter podcast. Make sure to check out corporatequitter.com for extended content and additional information about our guests. To connect with us, stay up to date on all things Corporate Quitter and to learn more about how you can leave the nine to five, follow our host Gabby on Instagram or TikTok at she likes to gab. 